Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we have got your summer reading episode for this year, except it's coming late, as it often does. Or uh, extremely early, right? depending on how you look at it. Or it may be a sort of like climate latitude-derived impression of summer. Here in Atlanta, summer kind of goes until December or so. Yeah, and plus, you know, summer is uh, is in the mind and yeah. in the heart, you know. Uh, but we've also kind of been thinking of it as the death of summer episode. It's mm. the episode that celebrates the passing. It's a wake for summer. And so if, you're, if, you have, if you don't know what we're talking about here, uh, this has been a long-standing tradition of Stuff to Blow Your Mind is to do an episode in which uh, the hosts and sometimes guests will d- just bring up a few different books that they have read in the past year that they enjoyed, that they found insightful, that they recommend, uh, or just want to, you know, celebrate in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, oh, and you mentioned guests. We've got a special treat for you today. We're bringing back a blast from the past, a former host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, as a, as a guest for the end of this episode. But before we get to that, uh, Joe and I are just going to discuss uh, a few books that, that we picked out, uh, books that we enjoyed this year. Uh, and it can be kind of difficult at times. I think we've discussed this before, because generally if we read a really good book, it's generally going to fall into one of two categories. Either it's something we're reading for work, for as part of our podcast research, so, of course, we're going to discuss uh, it on the show. Or we end up just talking and banding about back and forth on some episode about it. Right. Or it's just something where we don't start reading it for the show, but then there's just something in there. We learn something uh-huh. uh, that is just so uh, irresistible that it has to become an episode. Yeah. Uh, so it can be hard to come up with, like, fresh picks. So what's a really good book I read this year that I didn't already talk about on one episode or another? But but we've got a few today. That's right. Robert, did you want to go first today? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say in, in passing, you know, that uh, obviously I read, a, you know, a number of books that I, I really love this year. But everyone, I think, has heard me talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think I talked about Broca's Brain, Reflections on the Romance of Science by Carl Sagan, uh-huh. a classic that I, I, I read this year. Uh, and, of course, we talked a lot about How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I've discussed on the show uh, how much I've been enjoyed reading uh, the writings of Terrence McKenna mm-hmm. uh, as well. But uh, one book that I don't think I've discussed on the show, or at least if it's come up, it's only come up in passing, is uh, the, pr- probably the best uh, one of the best pieces of fiction I read this year. And it is Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones from oh. 2016. Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, I think we mentioned him on last year's summer reading episode because we didn't go in full detail, but when I was just talking about what I was reading at the time, Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned After the People Lights Have Gone Off, which is a short story collection by Stephen Graham Jones, which is fantastic. I I am really into this author, and I'm actually currently in the middle of another book by him, a uh, a novel called Demon Theory, which maybe I'll talk about in a minute after you talk about mongrels. Oh, absolutely. So Stephen Graham Jones is a Blackfeet Ameri- uh, Native American author uh, who's, who writes in a number of different genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I read this particular book, Mongrels, uh, on a trip out to Arizona earlier in the year. In fact, I actually picked it up in the gift shop of the, the Herod Museum of American Indian Art uh, there in Arizona, which is a wonderful museum, uh, by the way. But the gift shop is also great and includes a lot of First Nation authors in various genres, including like science fiction, young adult, and of course, horror. Yeah. Because Mongrels uh, is a lot of things, but it is also a werewolf book. Yeah. 
And and I'll go. I'll certainly easily go as far to say it, that it is the best piece of werewolf fiction I have ever read. <laughs> I can't think if I've ever read a werewolf novel. Wait a minute, you read that like werewolf spy book, didn't you? No, I just looked at it at a beach house. It was uh, like CIA werewolf or something. Yeah, I, I I'm in this the same boat. Like when I try to think of like really great werewolf. Uh, fiction, mm-hmm. or even great werewolf movies are kind of few and far between. Like, the werewolf is a wonderful concept, uh-huh. but it's not always utilized well in uh, in a narrative form. Uh, but Mongrels does a fantastic job with the, with the werewolf uh, in, 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 in several different ways. So, it, just approaching it from just a monster geek kind of uh, standpoint, uh, Jones takes the the existing like you know motif of the werewolf and sort of the you know some of the existing uh, key points of the werewolf mythos, and, uh, and and not only like not only does he utilize those well in the book, but he he creates a few new wrinkles in the mythology uh, that that manages to just make everything feel more real about the werewolf. Uh, uh-huh. Like he he brings it uh, more life without just you know without totally recreating it without like you know totally just uh, you know creating something new that we call a canthropy. Uh he he pairs it a lot with like themes about family though, doesn't he? Yeah, because this is this is ultimately a a coming of age story. It is um it is a, is about this young boy uh whose whose family moves around they're on like the fringes of society and it is um it is it is imp- I can't remember if it is implied, merely implied, or or or, or you know, obviously stated that the the, the family are, um, are 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 Native American mm-hmm. uh, or Native American, uh, you know, descended. Uh, but but I, I believe that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you get, get the you know the sense that his family is you know existing on 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 the the, the edges of everything, just barely scraping by, and they are plagued by. Uh, lycanthropy, like where the werewolf uh, blood runs in their family, and the this boy at the very beginning, he's just he's trying to figure it all out, like figure out the like we all are at, at a young age, trying to figure out this wider world of adulthood and family, and uh, trying to figure out where he fits into it. And he's told, you know, you you might not be, you not might might not have the werewolf blood in you, uh, you know, you might have this normal life, but you but you also very very may very well. Uh, be one of us. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the book is about him struggling with that. Like, what does he want to be and who is he? And, um, and gosh, Stephen Graham Jones just does a tremendous job in this. Like, it's it's just a beautiful book to read, the way he uses this metaphor. Mm-hmm. And at times you even, at times you're like, oh man, this is a great werewolf book. But other times you almost forget that it it, it is a monster novel because it's, it's it's more about, uh, about this young boy and about the, like, family identity and, uh, and 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 uh, and how he's figuring out his life, and then it's uh, it's written uh, very elegantly, laid out very elegantly, because each chapter is pretty much a short story unto itself. So mm. the, the structure is great. Like you, it's one of these books where you, you finish a chapter, and if that were the end of the the novel, uh, you would you would feel pretty satisfied. Uh, so it's it's one of the more like just structurally complete uh, books that I've read in a long time. Like it does, there's no fat on it either. So it's not like oh well, this short story just feels kind of you know, a little extra, or this this chapter is a little extra, uh, and then you know, it's just uh, filling in the gaps. No, it's just it's 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 all meat, just like a werewolf would like. Yeah, uh, I I've thought for a long time now of Stephen Graham Jones as a horror writer, not just a horror writer. He's he's written in I don't know works that span different genres, but a lot of uh, what he seems to be known best for is his horror fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he seems to me like somebody who is at the same time 
very creative and thoughtful and willing to get experimental, but at the same time, refreshingly free of writerly pretensions. Yeah. Some of the comments I've heard and read about like his writing process and, and work and all that seems kind of, I don't know, just like not precious about it. And I think somehow that attitude comes through in at least uh, what I've heard, what I've read of his as a kind of freedom that crackles through the prose, like in this, he, he he's a very thoughtful writer, but at the same time has some kind of distance from what he's doing that just allows him to, to spin a yarn with a kind of, with degrees of freedom that I don't often feel in other authors. Yeah, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not describing it well, but there's, there's, there's something about this book where it does not feel like deliberate in a, in a writer's sense, or, or at least it's so good that I don't, I don't think about like the writing process when mm-hmm. I'm reading it. Uh, you know, it's just, I, I remember when, when I was going it was chapter to chapter, it was, uh, uh, it was it was you know one of these books where you just couldn't put it down, mm-hmm. and I also ended up when I was thinking about it, I was thinking you know just totally about the characters and 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 they're and 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 wondering maybe even worrying like what was going to happen to them and it I think it'd been a long time since I'd really had that experience with a book so uh, you know really I really have to give this one you know top marks for sure yeah uh, and another thing about Stephen Graham Jones that I've noticed it and it comes through if you just read one of his uh, collections of short stories like after the people lights have gone off is that he can write it at very different levels like some of the horror this all horror stories pretty much in this mm-hmm. book uh, or at least kind of strange at least weird stories most of them are you would think of as horror but some are like thoughtful I don't know what this sounds pretentious but what people would probably call literary horror kind of reserved prose contemplative uh eerie rather than 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 splatter horror but then some of them are just splatter horror like some <laughs> of it is like lowbrow almost uh gross out horror and and he's great at that too right yeah um in this book there's I, w- I would recommend this book for people who are maybe even not horror fans. Like, I don't mm. want anyone to be turned off by the werewolf aspect of it because it's not, it's not really blood and guts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, though it does have a few, there are a few details in it that, that do make your skin crawl. In particular, he has this whole business about how, like, a werewolf has to be very careful about what they wear. Uh-huh. Um, because, like, imagine, for instance, if you're wearing spandex and you grow out into a werewolf. Uh, werewolf form, this large dog-like body covered in hair. Uh-huh. Like the spandex is not going to rip away and be left on the ground. It's going to remain. It's going to stretch out and the hair of the wolf is going to poke through it. And then what happens when that hair recedes back into the body? Hmm. Uh, it's catastrophic. <laughs> uh, and uh, and, it, it, and he describes it in, in, in detail in the book. It, it's, it's, it's grisly. It's the reason that I believe they always wear like blue jean cutoffs in the book huh. because it's something that will tear away <laughs> And you don't have to worry about it, like, you know, potentially killing you later. Wow. Uh, I'm in the middle of reading another novel by Stephen Graham Jones now. I mentioned this other earlier novel. I think it's from, like, 2006 or so. Mm-hmm. It's called Demon Theory. Yeah. Which is one of the strangest books I've ever read. I still, uh, you know, I'm like 100 pages in and I'm still not quite sure exactly what's going on. But so far it seems to be a novelization of a non-existent B-horror film with scholarly footnotes. Ah. Uh, but it's it, it's getting a little bit weirder as it goes on. And I, it's, it's striking me as a, a very exploratory, experimental kind of novel 
Uh, I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. Kind of shades of uh, House of Leaves to uh, yes, a certain extent. Yes, sort of, yeah. But yeah, I, I would just say in general, Stephen Graham Jones, really interesting author. If you like horror at all, or even if you don't like horror, mm-hmm. worth, giving a, worth giving a try. Absolutely. And Mongrels is available uh, just all over the place. You can get it in audiobook form as well. Well, okay, well Joe, what are, what's your pick then, uh, your first pick for this summer reading episode? Well, okay, so I think you were mainly focusing on fiction this year. I think our guest is mainly going to focus on fiction. So I, I'm doing doing a few nonfiction books. Okay. Though, though, I mean, of course, I will give a quick acknowledgement of like, uh, I'd say probably the best fiction book I read this year was The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Oh, but my I, goodness. It's but a I, classic. Yeah, it's a classic. And it's it's a classic for a reason. That is a fantastic novel. I mean, just so rich, so good. I read it with a with like a, a companion glossary that you let me borrow. It's like this whole other book that's like a key to all of oh, the yes, historical the, the key references. to the name of the rose, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, to, because like Umberto Eco was a genuine medievalist, and so a lot of the, like, the historical setting of the novel is rich with real details from, from actual history. And uh, and so the the key to the name of the rose, I, I would I would recommend doing it that way. If you read the name of the rose, get that book and have it alongside with you when you read it. Right. Though at the same time, I would uh, I don't want to scare anyone away from the name of the rose because mm-hmm. uh, I feel like Umberto Eco does a, a really good job with you know the contextual uh, usage of these different references. So there'll be there'll be passages in other languages. Mm-hmm. There'll be references to historical figures or. Or um, you know works of uh, of literature, various manuscripts, or what have you, and he's pretty good about like grounding it within the, the context of the story. So you don't have to necessarily know what those things are. Right. But on the other hand, it's that extra level of appreciation to be able to look it up uh, in, say, the key to the name of the rose, and, and see exactly what it was referring to. Right. You don't have to speak Latin to recognize the Latin or vulgar Italian phrase for the black magic of Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> Okay, uh, so uh, so I'm going to talk about some nonfiction books this year. Uh, and this year, you know what? I'm not going to read all the junk that comes after the colon in a nonfiction book title. I wish publishers would stop <laughs> insisting on all that stuff after the colon and just let the book have a regular title. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to enforce that rule myself. So the first one I want to talk about today uh, was a really interesting and important book. Uh, it's called A Crack in Creation. It came out in 2017 by Jennifer Doudna and Samuel Sternberg. And at base, this is a book about the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology and the the current spate of gene editing technologies. Uh, This is an unusual and really interesting kind of book because it's a book about a revolutionary moment in science and technology written right in the middle of that revolutionary moment, not really looking back, but like the you know, what this book is about is still going on right now mm-hmm. and written by one of the leading scientists who brought about this revolution. In this case, that would be Jennifer Doudna, who is one of the, the main figures in discovering the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing potential. So Jennifer Doudna is a biochemist at UC Berkeley. Previously, she'd worked in research on RNA and ribozymes. But over the past decade, she and colleagues both in her Berkeley lab and uh, at a few other institutions, including uh, work by uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and and other colleagues around the world, they discovered the potential of the bacterial CRISPR-Cas9 machinery to change what's possible in gene editing, to make gene editing a much more plausible economical proposition in many more scenarios than previous uh, gene insertion technologies. 
And so in this book, there, there are a few different sections, Doudna and Sternberg. Oh, and Sternberg is one of her colleagues as well, as uh, so I think a, a student who had originally worked under her. But uh, they write about the discovery in a few different ways. So there's like a scientific background section where they explain the genetics and the microbiology that underlies the uh, the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. They explain how it works. They tell the autobiographical story of the research efforts that made the discovery. But then a lot of the book is them talking firsthand about trying to grapple with the real-world implications of this powerful technology and trying to get the rest of the world to slow down and consider the ethical issues with gene editing before they say run off and start editing human germ lines. And of course, when you edit the human germ line, like the embryos or like the sperm mm -hmm. or egg cells, you make changes that don't just change one person, but will make changes that can be passed on to all future generations that come after that person. And so they've been trying to say, hey, wait, we should think out the ethical issues that, that come along with this uh, level of, of gene editing technology before we just go hog wild and apply it everywhere. And it's really interesting hearing Doudna and Sternberg wrestle with the, the ethical pros and cons in real time. Like she talks about how at first she was just like, well, you know, I, I think we've got to have a, a moratorium right now on germline editing because, you know, we, we, we haven't thought through all the ethical considerations yet. But then she talks about meeting with the families of people who suffered from, you know, horrible uh, or deadly genetic diseases that said, no, you know, like if we've got the power to do something – that could, have, that could have saved my loved one or that could potentially save uh, people like them in the future, yes, of course you should do that now. And so there are these powerful forces pulling in both directions. There's this strong resistance and fear about what this, this technology could mean if it's applied too loosely or too quickly without thinking about all of the consequences. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this powerful interest uh, on the part of people who are like, this is life and death for me and for people like me. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those moral dilemmas where, like, you know, to say, let's just have all of it. Let's just let's just go at it and just, uh, you know, see where the, the cards fall. Like, that's that's irresponsible. But on the other hand, just to just say, we're, we're not going to, we're just going to shut off an entire line of research here. We're not going to, we're not going to investigate this technology any further when there's so much that could be, uh, could be gained from it. Yeah, gene editing, I think, is another example of something perhaps like, sort of like nuclear technology, sort of like artificial intelligence we have technological power before we understand exactly how that technological power can be used. And part of the problem is that with all, all of these technologies, actually with nuclear, with artificial intelligence, with gene editing now, especially because of CRISPR-Cas9, the, the, they are reaching a point of um, dispersal, basically, where you can't just say, well, only the people in this one ivory tower can make the decision about whether to use these technologies or not. Right. because. One of the things that, that CRISPR has brought along is that, you know, now gene editing is becoming so easy that, uh, you know, she talks about how you know, with the right tools and the right know-how, a high school student could do gene editing. Uh, I mean, that's literally the world we are entering now. Wow. And, and that's like a terrifying power uh, because, you know, she talks about how, well, okay, so it's one thing to talk about uh, the precise types of gene editing made possible by CRISPR-Cas9 to say knock out a gene that causes a double recessive genetic disease that is debilitating or fatal and, mm -hmm. and saving lives that way versus on the other hand, 
this could be used in so many ways that people haven't even thought of yet. There's the idea of editing genes to create designer pets, like the micro pig created in China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where you can just alter a gene that it, that controls how growth hormone is dealt with in the body, and that one alteration suddenly creates an adult pig that's like the size of a small dog. And so, okay. Well, maybe that doesn't sound so bad, but you could just keep going like that. She imagines that what's to stop people from trying to create dragons out of living organisms and all that. Not necessarily like, oh, we should be worried about the threat posed by the dragons, but like, is it ethical to be intentionally altering nature this way? Then again, on the other hand, you've you've got the issue of like, well, we already do sort of alter nature, but in much clumsier ways. Yes. Uh, Again, as we, uh, we often point out, look to the pug. Yeah. Is the example, uh, but the, I guess the idea is that the pug took considerably longer to produce, and you're talking yeah. about cr- potentially creating a pug, um, you know, not over the the course of uh, of generations and generations, but uh, within like a single generation, create uh, a dragon pug. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just it's a really really thorny issue, and it's one that we can't just stick our heads in the sand and like pretend like, oh, okay, that sounds scary. I don't want to think about it because the future's coming. Yeah, we have to are, figure out how we're yes. going to encounter it, how we're going to deal with it morally, to how we're going to, uh, you know, arrange our laws to deal with it. Yes, you can't escape this issue by not thinking about it because other people, whether they're thinking about it or not, are doing it. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the capability is is there now. Um, and so there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Oh, God, I'm sorry I used a cliche like that. Uh, there's no putting all the, uh, what would be a, not a cliche, there's no stuffing all of the uh, listeria-containing salad back in the bag. <laughs> we, are, we are in the gene-editing era now. We're in the earliest days of it, but our, we're going to become more and more powerful, and our abilities at gene-editing are going to become more and more uh, dispersed to more people. So, you know, people can just make decisions on their own about what to do, and we should start to come up with a coherent ethical framework for what we think about what is right and what is not right to do in gene editing, and I, th- I think we have not solved these problems yet. We don't know what the right thing is yet. Yeah, I, uh, I attended a, a panel at the World Science Festival a few years back where mm. uh, some of the leading uh, 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 experts in, in, this, in this field were talking about kind of, kind of this, basically the same issue, like, what, like how are we gonna, going to, to, to handle this? How are we going yeah. to, uh, you know, properly, how are we going to re- try to, you know, keep our wisdom at a level uh, to where we're yeah. not completely outpaced by our power. Yeah. And I guess, in, you know, in some ways, it's it's like other things. Like mm-hmm. one can certainly look to pharmaceuticals and drugs and, mm-hmm. and various other technologies that are, um, you know, that, that, that either have been, have, you know, been highly legislated from the beginning or, or you know, laws come in place and, uh, and bodies are, are established to, to deal with them early on. But, but in, in other ways, it does seem unlike anything that we've really had to deal with before. Right. Like it's far more specific in, um, in, in changing who we are, potentially. Yeah, and changing other organisms. Yeah, changing. sometimes without realizing like what the full uh, ramifications are that, of that are. Because we mentioned the pug earlier and yeah. you know, the fact that, of course, humans have, have always been uh, 
uh, changing their environment. Uh-huh. Uh, but like that history, you can look to the many cata- catastrophic things we have done yeah. in interacting with our environment. I mean, another great example would be, I think we've talked about this on at some point on the show before, but uh, CRISPR-enabled gene drive technology is mm-hmm. where you can drive certain genes into wild populations of organisms. Uh, one of the most common examples that has been floated uh, here would be driving genes into mosquitoes to either like wipe mosquitoes out by uh, making them sterile or creating like an all-female population or or all-male, I don't remember which one. Uh, But so you could do that or trying to drive a gene into mosquitoes that makes them resistant to the uh, malaria parasite. Right. Which, okay, so on one hand it sounds like, well, yeah, malaria, you know, mosquito-borne illnesses kill millions of people every year. Of course, you've got like an ethical responsibility to do that. But have we fully thought about all the consequences? I mean, there are a lot – there might be consequences that we have not envisioned yet and then there might be ways that we're not properly appreciating the ethics of the consequences that we do know how to predict. Right. And then whereas, you know, if, if such a decision, say, with the mosquito, just to simplify things, like if the decision were coming from just a purely from, from a, you know, a public health standpoint, mm-hmm. like the mosquito is one thing. But coming from a you know a, a conservation standpoint, the mosquito is potentially another. Like uh, you know, fact, factoring in that uh, a mosquito is also food for uh, for various species. It is a pollinator. Uh, you know, it it has a a definite widespread role in uh, the environment, mm-hmm. and one has to be careful not to jeopardize that because if it changes, if it moves, everything moves. Yeah, uh, but it's also not hard to imagine just based on what we've already talked about. Uh, like about the idea of deploying certain types of tailored gene drives as weapons of mass environmental destruction. Mm-hmm. Like if you were a terrorist and you yeah. just want, you know, something like that. Or back in the in the more human health domain, there are serious questions about like, okay, so it's less controversial when you just want to talk about single point gene mutations to cure a genetic disease or something. Mm-hmm. But what if people more generally start thinking, there are a, f- a few ways I would like to improve my genome, you know, or maybe you can't improve your genome as an adult, but to improve the genome of my child and Im- improve in quotation marks, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, because we get down to the like the basic imperfection of of the species, you know, yeah. like we are we are not perfect beings that, uh, you know, we're, we're drawn out of holy butter or something, you know, I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're a creature that evolved into this state and there, there are various, uh, design issues with say the way we walk yeah. and, uh, you know, among other things. So like, if you start, um, if, if you start trying to fix everything that is wrong, like where, where do you, where do you stop? Yes. And what counts as wrong? I mean, it would just be a, it would come down to individual preferences and what medical science allows us to do. Yeah. And it's going to be more and more all the time. So this is, I think, an incredibly important, incredibly thorny issue that uh, that I think we're not ready for and we need to be doing more to try to get ready to deal with this. Anyway, but, uh, but this is a great place to start with that. The book, again, is called A Crack in Creation by Jennifer Doudna and Samuel Sternberg, 2017. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, I think. And when we come back, we're going to roll through some additional bits of summer reading recommendation. All right, we're back. All right, Robert. So I think you had a recommendation coming up next, right? Yeah. So every year, uh, at least recently, I've been trying to include some sort of children's book because since I have uh, now a seven-year-old, 
uh, a lot of the reading that I do uh, is bedtime stories, you know, mm. like, and, and you know, we've, we proudly celebrate uh, reading in, in our household. Uh, but uh, a lot of the books that are, you know, some of the books that I read are, you know, maybe not that great or they're forgettable or they're fine for a seven-year-old, but they don't have much of an impact uh, on an adult reader. But I have a particular book here that uh, I picked up. I don't even know how it came into our house, possibly via a lending library, and then possibly, like, I, I may have purchased it or, uh, you know, obtained it uh, from a library because it's a former library copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of these where, like, the, you know, the, the scanning bar has been uh, sharpied out and so forth. <laughs> but it is a book titled First Painter by Catherine Lasky with paintings by Rocco uh, Baviera. And it's from 2000. And it is a book, a children's book, uh, beautifully illustrated children's book about Neolithic people and Neolithic art. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, uh, for starters, I I just want to read just a section of it to give you just a a, a, a glimpse, uh, just a taste of, uh, of, of 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 its poetry. Quote, The moon of the singing grass has come and gone three times, and still there is no rain. Babies have been born and grown into little walkers and never seen rain. My name is Misu. I have lived for ten moons of the singing grass, and now I am beginning to forget the rain, its sound, its shape, and how the water clouds gather like herds of woolly mammoths in the east. My people are hungry. They are starving. First the grass died, then the animals, now us. So that that's the just the first mm. page from the book, and it is the the story of, of Mishu of this uh, this young girl in this Neolithic tribe, uh, whose whose people are are plagued by famine, and uh, she is uh, she realizes that she has to do what uh, uh, what women in her family have done um, for generations before her. She has to set out to a sacred cave, and she has to through the creation of art. Uh, call back the rains and bring rain and food back to her people, and it's a uh, it's it's beautifully written, beautifully uh, illustrated, and written really gets into this uh, you know gets into some of the questions. Indeed, you know larger questions, I guess, like what is art, and, mm-hmm. and you know what what role does it play in in the, the human experience, but also just like the mystery of Neolithic painting and mm-hmm. uh, and some of the theories regarding it. Like it's one of these books that uh, at the end, uh, the author, you know, has a bibliography where she cites, uh, you know, a, 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 about a dozen different sources where, you know, she really researched, uh, you know, the, uh, you know the, the shamans of prehistory, for example, or, uh, you know, archaeology of early man. And there, there's an insightful afterword about her process here. Uh, so it's it's one of these books that I highly recommend for anybody who has a, a you know a young reader in their household, or even if you don't, if you just if you're just excited by a topic like this, it's worth picking up. Catherine Lasky, uh, also by the way, uh, if you're not familiar with her, she's she's a very well known children's author. Uh, she wrote the Guardians of Gahul book series. Oh, okay. Uh, she also wrote the Night Journey, which is about a Jewish family's escape from Russian uh, pogroms of the early 20th century. And she also wrote True North about the Underground Railroad. Uh, she's extremely prolific, uh, and uh, and so this book is it's still out there. You should be able to pick up a copy, or at least pick up a used copy of it somewhere. Check it out of your library, uh, but I highly recommend it. Touches on some of the the topics we've discussed on the show before as well. Yeah, I was just flipping through it earlier uh, before we started, and some of the illustrations are very beautiful. There's like a, there's one where somebody's looking up through a crack in a cave. It's somebody standing above looking in. Yeah, the, the sort of the, yeah, the whole plot line where she's uh, she has to descend into the cave, and it's this you know dangerous dark place, and she mm-hmm. has to find this this place where 
uh, people in her tribe have gone to create the art uh, that uh, you know that has this this magical power. Oh, so that's the the children's selection for to, for today's episode. Oh, what have you got for us next, Joe? All right, next is back to another nonfiction book. This one is a book by the British science writer Philip Ball, published in 2018 called Beyond Weird. Again, I'm not going to read what comes after the colon. The title is Beyond Weird. Now, we've (laughs) talked about some of Philip Ball's work on the show before. He's written a lot about physics and chemistry. Robert, I think we read a good article by him published in Chemistry World about the supposed chemistry of the tomb of Qin Shi Huang, the first Chinese emperor. Oh, yes. But this book, Beyond Weird, is a book about quantum mechanics. And you may think, eh, you know, I've read about quantum mechanics before. It was very surprising at first, but I know all this stuff now. If you're feeling like that, I think you should reconsider and give this book a shot. I'm pretty sure this is the best book on quantum physics that I've read. Uh, A lot of writings on quantum physics sort of acknowledge the apparent weirdness and the disconnect between the uncertain probabilistic world of quantum mechanics in the solid factual world that we seem to observe at our macroscopic scale. And then they just sort of wave the hand and move on, right? Like, it's very weird. Isn't that very weird and interesting? Now Mm -hmm. let's get on with other stuff. But beyond weird, instead, basically, it, it just gazes straight into this apparent weirdness. It looks into the core of the black hole uh, not literally, it's not about black holes, but I, I mean, you know, it's just like, it's like staring into the sun. It's kind of unbearable, but it's fascinating for that reason. It tries to grapple with the supposed weirdness directly. It, of course, deals with a lot of common misconceptions about quantum mechanics. It ke- <laughs> There's a whole section of like, it's not exactly right to say that X is Y about quantum mechanics. And mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but but the, the way he explains uh why these misconceptions are perpetuated is very interesting. It also deals with the war between the rival interpretations of of the theory of quantum mechanics, which could mostly be thought of as ways of attempting to resolve the apparent weirdness of quantum reality. Um, But he he looks at it with a kind of clarity and focus that makes the book, in my my view, totally unique and worthwhile. I haven't read anything like this before. It's really challenging, really, truly mind-bending, and I already want to read it again. What do you feel – how would you recommend this to just sort of the average reader? Do you feel like someone needs to already be somewhat versed in quantum mechanics? Should they have read like – should they be like a regular reader of quantum mechanics-related uh, topics in science journalism? No, I'd say it's at the intermediate level. You know, it, it's not it's not a book that's going to be super approachable to like kids or people who don't know anything about physics. And, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not, it, you know, it doesn't require you to be a scientist, obviously. It's written for a popular audience, okay. you know. So it's one of those middle world books. It doesn't assume you have any kind of specialized knowledge. It explains everything to you. But it also is dealing with you know, the most complex subject matter in the world, probably literally. So <laughs> so it's not as approachable as some other books. But it is a really, really, uh, I mean, it's a book that captures the attention because it drives home the fact, it, like, if you have read books about quantum physics before, you felt the weirdness back then, and then you're like, you got used to it, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, you know, I know all this stuff now. Uh, I don't know which interpretation is correct, but, you know, I, I'm basically familiar with the weirdness. It doesn't bother me anymore. This will make it bother you again. <laughs> That's a great thing. Like, it really, really gazes directly into the the source of, of how strange this feels to us. And it, 
it, it forces you to deal with it. And, it, you know, it points out the fact that, like, this is what reality is. I mean, qu quantum physics is one of the best theories in all of science. It's totally predictive. We use it for all kinds of stuff. It's not like you can just pretend it doesn't exist and move on. I mean, this is telling something uh, – telling us something fundamental about reality, but what it's telling us, of course, is still up for debate or how we should interpret what it's telling us. And you've got to grapple with it if you want to understand what you think reality is. Just as a kind of teaser, a lot of the definitions that uh, that Ball ends up dealing with and, and maybe seeming to favor somewhat in the book are definitions of reality where that, that say the most fundamental aspects of reality are maybe not uh, are maybe not facts and things, but probability and information. Hmm. Interesting. So, do you foresee any future uh, episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, related to this content? Oh, possibly. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, quantum physics is funny because I was trying to think about how to put this. It's like it's something that it's hard to do episodes about without a visual aid because you really need a visual aid in order to correctly conjure the inappropriate misleading metaphors that you will ultimately use <laughs> right. to try to explain the concept. I mean, you know, like explanations of quantum mechanics often fail at multiple levels at the same time. Mm -hmm. And some of those failures, you just sort of must be resigned to them. Is it kind of like talk about it? you have to, is it kind of like you have to have an, like an incorrect version of what it is before you can like refine that version? Like it, it sort of, I mean, yeah, part of the problem is that like quantum, quantum reality is dealing with phenomenon that we have no analogies for whatsoever. And so when you try to create an analogy to illustrate it, you inherently bring along a lot of baggage that mm -hmm. is misleading. So you've got a, a few choices. Like you can try to picture it, which might give you a sense of security because you're like, okay, now I'm trying to picture it. But now you've introduced a lot of stuff that's sort of leading you off in the wrong direction and causing you to partially misunderstand it. Mm. So you can just back off and say, well, let's just not even try to picture it. Let's just look at the math and say, literally, what does it say? But then it doesn't feel like it's real. It doesn't right. feel or, like or, it makes sense in the or world. Or it's not going to work that way for everybody. Like, you're, like yeah. certain mathematical minds are going to maybe, you know, take that approach a lot more easier yeah. than, than the rest of us. Huh. Uh, and it just hammers home the fact that, like, the, the, the quantum world is real. It's maybe more real than the macroscopic world that we're used to. Uh, maybe a good way to think about it is our ability to picture things in the macroscopic world is the illusion. Mm. It's an illusion that is our best way of dealing with quantum reality as it presents at the scale of our bodies. But it doesn't really tell us what reality is. It's just sort of our best approximation. Well, speaking of uh, approximations of reality, um, <laughs> uh, my, my next pick is another work of fiction. Uh, but it is a short work of fiction. Uh, so if anyone out there is like, oh, I don't have time to read uh, an entire uh, novel or you know a lengthy book, well, the good news is that this is a short story. Uh, it is by Peter Watts, who we've mentioned on the show before, and the short story is titled A Word for Heathens. Mm. And uh, it's collected in the, uh, uh, the short story collection from Watts titled Beyond the Rift, uh, which, which is uh, itself a, a very cool little uh, collection of tales, including it, it includes uh, uh, his version of John Carpenter's The Thing retold from the point of view of The Thing. Yeah. 
which uh, in, in and of itself just is called things. Yes, things. I think referring to us. <laughs> yeah, and then that in in and of itself is a is a wonderful bit of like biologically uh, uh, contemplative science fiction uh-huh. uh, that I, I think is, is certainly a must read for anyone who is uh, you know a fan of of the thing. Uh, and also, uh, you know, is inquisitive about, uh, the, you know, the, the nature of uh, like an alien consciousness. Like, what would that be? What would the, the mind of the thing be like? Uh-huh. Um, but this particular story from that collection, uh, A Word for Heathens, is uh, about an electromagnetism-obsessed theocracy uh-huh. that invokes the spiritual experience of God uh, via like God helmets and other technology, but they also yeah. use uh, electromagnetic technology for like trains and stuff, and like consider like the holy power of their empire. Yeah, so it's like it's Persinger's God helmet, but a crusade for that religion, right? <laughs> and then the heathen uh, religion that they are so opposed to and are like fighting uh, tooth and nail is uh, is a, a society that uses psychedelic mushrooms mm-hmm. to invoke. Uh, a spiritual uh, sensation of uh, of God or the divine, but I think you could just look at that as any like a version of natural religion. Yeah, it's like the the technological religion has a crusade against the natural religion because the natural religion is outside the true church, which is a technological uh, infrastructure. Yes, yeah. So it's um yeah it's it's a wonderful setup, and then it's just such a stunning and complete short story. Like. It's one of these 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 rare short stories where I read it and it leaves me wanting more, but knowing I, I probably shouldn't have more. Right. Like it's like the perfect dessert, you know, where you're just like I'm completely satisfied. Uh, you know, part of me would 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 want the uh, part of and part of me does want like the expanded novelization of this this world from Watts. But on the other hand, like the short story accomplishes everything, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't want to give away the, the – there's some twists and turns in there uh, because you basically you know, fall into the, uh, uh, the perspective of one of the, the crusaders, uh-huh. and then you know, some things happen uh, that, uh, that causes his, uh, his perception of things to, uh, to, 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 to switch around. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderf- wonderful little short story. It would make for an amazing episode of, say, Black Mirror. Yeah. Uh, if they ever wanted to do something that was uh, a little more, like, uh, uh, broader and more fantastic, I think it could, it could, it could certainly fit into that world. Uh, just a fair warning on that. Like much of Peter Watt's work, I, uh, I do recall it being fairly disturbing. So Yeah, it's, 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 it's disturbing. It's for adults. <laughs> it's, for, it's for adults, yeah. I mean, it's not as disturbing as some other things he's written. Yeah. But... Uh, but but it's but I, uh, yeah so but I do want to say it's it's extremely good if yeah. you're looking for a, a, a really thought provoking short story this one is worth checking out absolutely agree yeah all right uh, and Joe I believe you have one more selection before we uh, summon our guest well I just want uh, because I think last year we sort of started a tradition of also just talking about what we're reading now so mm-hmm. I already mentioned the Stephen Graham Jones novel that I'm reading which is uh, very weird and engrossing in its own right but I'm also reading another nonfiction book right now. Which was, I think I, I think I started reading this because of a recommendation from a listener a while back. But it's been a while, so I, I'm not positive about that. But this one is called The Poison Squad by Deborah Blum, oh. uh, published in 2018. I'm not quite finished with it, but I, I thought I should mention it because it is absolutely disgusting in a profound way. So it's a historical account of... The Campaign for the Earliest Comprehensive Food and Drug Purity Laws in the United States. 
And it's centered around a major figure in this process, which was the American chemist Harvey Washington Wiley, who was one of the most important researchers and crusaders from the late 1800s through the early 1900s in this world of food purity and food additives. And in this period in the United States, uh, according to Blum, you know, there was very little reason to believe that if you bought a packaged food product or drug product, that it would actually consist entirely or even mostly or even at all of the food or drug that was identified on the label. Like whatever it did contain might have undergone maybe no, maybe very little testing for safety. Uh, according to Blum, there's this whole thing about milk she talks So, Like if you bought milk in the late 1800s, you might be very likely to get bacterially contaminated milk thinned out with unclean water Colored, like, so the thinning it out to stretch the milk further would give it a gross color. It might look gray. So then it would get colored with chalk or something else to get rid of the weird color. Uh, and then to simulate cream floating on top, which happens with natural milk, you might get pureed calf brains in there. And then because there's no re refrigeration to keep the milk fresh, it might have preservatives like formaldehyde or borax. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and it also at the time there were just these Problems with like candies and other color-enhanced foods containing dyes. A lot of dyes at the time were coal tar dyes, but then also there would be candy dyes made of arsenic or lead compounds that would just sometimes kill children. Um, uh, the, the parts about spices in this book are hilarious. Like pepper might have a significant or even majority constituency of floor sweepings and ground-up bits of charred rope. Ugh. Uh, coffee, too. Coffee might be, oh, what was it? I think maybe it's like charred sawdust with all these additives. <laughs> I mean, it, people were selling things as food that was not food and was in many cases not safe. And in a lot of cases, there just weren't comprehensive regulations that would prevent uh, sellers from doing that. And so, so far in this book, one thing I would say is that uh, one thing that I kind of wish is different is I wish it dealt more with like modern scientific evaluations of additives of the period. So we get like a lot of fascinating stories about uh, like crazy, crazy sounding preservatives and things like formaldehyde and milk, which people called embalmed milk. Um, but so far, not a lot of sense of exactly like how dangerous exactly these types of additives would have been at the concentrations they were used uh, by, like, modern food safety experts. I'm not done yet. Maybe something like that is coming up later on. But um, but even without the context of, like, modern scientific analysis, it is a fascinating and disgusting historical tale. And it's interesting reading about the parallels to modern times because it's it's very familiar the way that the food and drug manufacturers back then fought against regulation, you know, saying that these attempts to regulate their products were unconscionable, unacceptable attacks on liberty in the free market. You know, this has given me a, a wonderful idea. So in the past, uh, on Thanksgiving, we've tried to do, uh, American Thanksgiving, we do a Dangerous Foods episode. Uh -huh. And we've kind of, in the, I think all the episodes in the past, we've mainly focused on like naturally occurring foodstuffs, uh, be it like a fish or, uh, you know, or some sort of a, you know, a fauna or flora, you know, that, mm -hmm. that we consume and the dangers of consuming those things. 
or may- that may have in, uh, incorrectly been perceived to be dangerous. Right. Yes. So, but maybe we should. This, this is where we get another dangerous foods episode, or mm-hmm. at least one more, uh, where we talk about we we focus on industrial food products of the past. Oh, totally. Yeah. So maybe maybe look for that uh, this Thanksgiving <laughs> from stuff to blow your mind. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to introduce our guest. Okay, we're back. It's time to jump in with our interview with our guest, which we actually recorded before the episode. So if anything sounds out of order, like we've gone through a time warp, we we did. Yes, but this is going to be Christian Sager, former co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, current host of the Super Context podcast. Uh, we called him up. We said, hey, we'd love to have you back on the show uh, to discuss uh, summer reading uh, just like the old days. And he said yes, and so we're going to summon him Onto the show right now. What's going on, Christian? Hi, guys. Hey. I am talking to you all the way from Portland, Oregon, and you are currently in Atlanta, Georgia. Technology's cool, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so before we got on mic here, uh, Christian was telling us about how he's recording from a murder basement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I moved into a house in Northeast Portland and the basement is a lot like Buffalo Bill's house in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> you just go downstairs and then there's just endless hallways. And eventually, instead of coming to a pit in the floor, uh, there's my podcast studio. <laughs> well, uh, it looks like a pretty cozy pit to me. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful down here. I'm I'm making it work. I found a hobo spider down here the other day. That's my only concern. Oh, are those <laughs> the ones with the huge legs? Yeah, they're really mm-hmm. big, uh, and it seems debatable whether they're poisonous or not. I don't think they, they, they wouldn't kill you or anything. It's not like a brown recluse, but I don't want to get bitten by one. Fair enough. All right, so it seems like you are going to share some book recommendations for the death of the summer along uh, alongside ours today. Yeah, this is the, the late summer reading <laughs> uh, episode. <laughs> it, it happens every year. We say we're going to do summer reading, and then it we doesn't happen going, yeah, until... We're just pushing it later and later. That's Eventually what you guys it'll are calling it reading. now, death of summer? Yeah, the, the death rattle of summer. There, here are some books. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm always reading, as you dudes know, and uh, I had to whittle it down to three things. I used to do this when I was on the show with you guys. I used to try to make it be one nonfiction book, one fiction book, and then I would always throw a graphic novel in there for good measure. Well, that's a fair shake. I don't think we're going to do it exactly that way today, but uh, but yeah, that 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 helps us cover the range, especially since I don't think either you or I are doing graphic novels this year. Uh, no, I read like one one good graphic novel. Uh, but, and you uh, sent it to me. Yeah, that's right. And when I was done, I sent it to you. So Yeah, it's this graphic novel called Dull Margaret, and it is uh, written by the actor Jim Broadbent. <laughs> oh! The art is by a, an artist named Dix, D-I-X, and it's published by Fantagraphics, I believe. Um, but yeah, I'm fascinated by just the idea of a Jim Broadbent written... <laughs> graphic novel <laughs> one of my favorite so jim broadbent good. bits is in uh hot fuzz uh-huh. when, he's, when he's running away and he makes the lion roar <laughs> jim broadbent is so good i think you were actually telling me about this robert yeah now that you say it. i i had no idea he'd make a great actor but uh make of course he makes a great actor would make a great uh writer of graphic novels as well but he He's one of my favorite actors because he's like a human version of the Chamberlain Skeksis from The Dark Crystal. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, his his entire face is that mm, sound. Well, he was we trim- probably shouldn't diverge too much, but are you guys watching the, the Netflix prequel? 
Uh, I haven't started yet. We're going to watch here. it as a family. Uh, oh, Simon Pegg. Yeah, I heard he's sort of a standout. He's he's the Chamberlain now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe the, the the previous actor died uh, many years ago. But uh, does he do the uh, the the high pitched hum hum? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Right. It's it's a highly prominent. Um, yeah, I, I I recommend it. It's good so far. I'm only a couple episodes into it. But we're not here to talk about television, guys. We're here to talk about <laughs> books. Uh, so I'll tell you about the graphic novel that I selected that I've been reading this summer. It's called Shangri La, and it is a science fiction graphic novel. Uh, from Europe. It is published by Ankara Editions and it's written, drawn, and colored by Matteo Bablé, or maybe it's Matteo Bablé. I can't really pronounce. Is that not Matthew? Name that great. It, yeah, I believe it's like the French version of Matthew. Okay. Um, and it came out in 2016 and this is the most stuff to blow your mind book I've read this summer. <laughs> so I definitely wanted to share it with you guys. Um, it, first of all, the art, this guy's art is insane. Like he is this meticulous draftsman. If you look up images from it, uh, you'll see that he does these impeccable backgrounds that are all in a really well detailed perspective because the whole thing takes place on a space station that's orbiting earth and it's way in the future. And, uh, so you just get these wonderful long shots of, people walking down these like endless corridors on this massive space station. Uh, I'm looking up some art from it right now. So is the space station, does it kind of have some traditional architecture style? Like it doesn't look like a spaceship, but more like, I don't know, old buildings in the sky. Yeah. Inside it's designed to be like an ecosystem for the human race. So the plot of the book, well, the premise of the book is that there is no longer inhabitable space on the planet earth. People can't live up there anymore. So they've all moved to this space station. And yeah, everything, it's its very kind of like Blade Runner inside, like the architecture and what they have for technology. But it is a, a pretty heavy criticism of our current modern technology in that the culture on the space station is all run by this big corporation that owns the space station. And they are also the corporation that makes like all the phones and gadgets and stuff that the people have to distract themselves with on board the ship. Uh, And the main plot is about this, I guess astronaut is the best term for him. He's a scientist who uh, the corporation basically hires to try to figure out a way to create a, a like alternate human race that is better than human and is capable of functioning near the sun, living near the sun. And uh, he finds out that he's kind of a pawn in this whole game. And the other thing that's really interesting about this world is that there are no animals on board the ship because all the animals died in whatever happened on Earth. So it's uh, assumed to be like climate change disaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there are these things called animoids that are human-like they're humanoids, but they have the features of old animals. So there's like dog animoids, cat animoids. I think there's like a fox one. Um, and they are treated like the lower class on this space station. So the humans are all kind of placated with their cell phones. And then basically they take out all their aggression on these animoids. And uh, long story short, like 
the main character Scott finds out that things aren't the way that he thought they were. Uh, it's just, it is an a, amazing piece of work. It's just this big, massive story. The artwork is just, I mean, I can't imagine how many hours went into drawing this thing. It's gorgeous. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. And it's, it's the perfect kind of science fiction in that it's really about today's problems with society told through the lens of this like, you know, far reaching sci-fi future. And is this a self-contained uh, like single graphic novel or is this a series? My understanding is it's self-contained. Okay. I have not seen anything about there being more stories in this. Uh, sort of what you were talking about reminds me of the the satirical role and the the implicit criticism of like capitalism that's in like Total Recall, where oh, you yeah. know Cohagen yeah. controls the entire environment on Mars, where you know like he, it's a business, but it's through this business is the only way that you can get air that you breathe, and that, mm-hmm. that's always been an interesting potential, I think, of science fiction that you can like by removing people from Earth. You create these scenarios where whatever power, whatever the power structure is, this government or this business or whatever, controls the entire environment in which you can survive, whether that's a colony on another planet that's otherwise uninhabitable or a space station like in this graphic novel. Um, and I feel like it kind of highlights the ways that we sort of have this illusion that like, you know, well, we're, we're sort of free on Earth because like if we don't want to depend on governments and corporations, we could retreat to nature and survive and, you know, mm. we could just breathe the air and live off the land. I mean, whether that's actually feasible for a modern person is, I guess, more debatable. Uh, or, you know, whether it's feasible, like, to actually – that you could actually escape a society and, you know, uh, like, in the developed world. But Yeah, but what's a, you know, a pure form of uh, – or a, and more of an impure form of disruption, right, yeah. than destroying the environment or taking humanity and moving it to a place where there is no sustainable environment for our species. And we've already partially done that. I mean, in multiple ways, we've like sort of destroyed our ability to just like retreat to nature and say, Mm -hmm. no, I opt out. But like this is taking that to the ultimate extreme. If you're on a space station or if you're on a colony on an uninhabitable planet, you literally can't opt out. It's just your survival is totally dependent on whoever owns whatever this environment is. Yeah, you guys are hitting on exactly the the heaviest theme in this story. Uh, slight spoilers. This isn't going to like ruin anything for anybody. But the the pivot point in the story is when the protagonist finds out that the corporation's been lying to them for at least a century now, and that Earth is inhabitable. Again. Oh, this is And the... they've been keeping them on the space station so they can keep order and control. This is the same twist. I, I don't mean to diminish it because this graphic right, novel does it, look great, but yeah, it's, it's a solid twist. Uh-huh. It's the exact way. same twist as Highlander 2, The Quickening. I mean, of course. <laughs> it's, it's well worth copying in a 2016 graphic novel from France. Of course, Highlander 2 would be the inspiration for... <laughs> for this the, the levels above the shield are normal <laughs> yeah but basically they find out like oh we could have been living on earth the whole time and they that makes them even more conscious of how they've been controlled and placated and uh and uh ba- basically you know society starts to unravel from there mm. well that sounds really interesting i kind of want to check yeah, that out check now. that one out what have you got next Kristen? Uh, let's see i'm gonna save the best for last I so my fiction pick for this summer is something that I think some people think of as a classic, uh, but I had never read it before. So I took the time to sit down and read 
Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Oh. It's a 1962 mystery novel by mm-hmm. her. Uh, yeah, just last year, one of the books I recommended. Also, I guess I was hesitant about it because it's a classic. I assume a lot of people have already read it, but it, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I read that for the first time last year. It's oh, phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal yeah. ghost story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I read Haunting of Hill House and The Lottery, like a lot of people in, uh, you know, English classes in high school. And then I think I read Haunting of Hill House in college, but I never got around to this one. And everybody said to me, oh, that's the best book by her. It's, you know, it's heralded as being this real exemplar version of weird fiction. And so I wanted to figure out, you know, what what it was all about. Why why did everyone celebrate it? And so I finally sat down and read it. And it is a weird little story. It's not what I expected, uh, especially based on reading her other stuff. But it's it's um, I definitely recommend it. Um, the do you want me to tell you guys the plot of this book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, I haven't read this one. Yeah, I haven't read it. either. OK, I, I'll try not to go all the way through. I'll just give you the in- introductory plot. Um, so there are these two sisters, Maricat and Constance, and I believe they live in Vermont, in a small town in Vermont. It's based on the same town that Shirley Jackson was living in at the time that she wrote this. And uh, the backstory is that their entire family was poisoned to death a few years previous to this. Uh, and they were the only survivors, as well as their uncle Julian. And Julian was poisoned but not enough to kill him. So now he's like, uh, he's, he's bound to a wheelchair and he also has some like pretty significant memory problems. But uh, the, the girls and Julian basically stay in this house all the time. And it, it's ultimately this exploration of agoraphobia. I think Shirley Jackson was struggling with that at the time and she felt like an outsider in this small town in Vermont. And so she was trying to process those feelings through this book. So Constance is a total agoraphobe, never leaves the house. Uh, Julian can't leave the house because he's bound by a wheelchair. So Maricat, who's the youngest, she's like 17 years old. She's the only one who ever leaves the grounds of the house. She usually just goes to town and like picks up their groceries and brings them back. And everybody in the town hates uh, the people, the, the the main characters of the book. They, they hate them uh, because they're wealthy and because they live in like a big, nice house. But they also hate them because... They've never solved the mystery as to who killed the rest of their family with the poison. Christian, have you played the the card game Gloom? Because uh, <laughs> because this this sounds like it could have easily, along with like the Adams family and other you know obvious references, could have been the uh, you know inspiration for this. Oh no, I haven't played that. I just got a board game called Gloomhaven, but I don't know if they're connected or not. Uh, I don't. This one has more of a it's an Edward Gorey kind of style to it, but the the whole premise is that you, you you build it's like a kind of a it's not quite a deck building game i guess but it's uh you're build you're putting this family on the table there and you just want horrible things to happen to them and whoever <laughs> whoever manages to like kill off their family first uh, uh wins uh, but there are all these like little details on the cards about all the horrible things that have happened uh, like the tragic nature of the family and the, the sort of the gothic nature of the family uh but but it reminds me a lot of what you're describing here like this family could very well be uh played on the table in a, in a game of gloom yeah absolutely it sounds like uh if it wasn't influenced by by this then maybe it was influenced by something that Shirley Jackson had influenced cuz she's so she's such a like strong presence in uh horror and mystery mm-hmm. fiction i think as a 
as an influence. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's like the haunting of Hill house Joe in that it's very internal and it's a lot about the thoughts going through the main characters heads uh-huh. uh, and things basically, you know, the, the, conflict point that caused things to change is that a cousin of theirs appears out of nowhere and moves in with them and wants to change things wants to take advantage of the family fortune and uh, uh you can see a running theme here then things fall apart so <laughs> <laughs> oh man that uh, the haunting of hill house also has a great uh, like freeloader guy kind of character yeah 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 um, Haunting of Hill House is fascinating. Have you looked into those adaptations of it? No, I've actually been meaning to do a double feature one night to watch the 1963 film and then watch the 1999 or whatever it was, the one with Catherine mm-hmm. Zeta-Jones and mm-hmm, Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only one I've seen. It had Owen Wilson. I in saw it. that. Yeah, the Owen theater. Wilson. Yeah, uh, I've heard it's bad, but I kind of want to see it anyway because I love that like late 90s CGI horror phase. It's mm-hmm. so it just uh-huh. does not hold up at all. Like it's yeah. it's not as good as Thirteen Ghosts. That's how bad it is. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I I actually like Thirteen Ghosts. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I would point out that the the trajectory of the adaptations of Haunting of Hill House have like sort of weaved into what's great about Shirley Jackson and then weaved out of it. Uh-huh. Um, the early one is great because you never see anything. Uh, oh, it's yeah. all done through what's behind the door. The door bulges. You hear scary noises on the other side of the door, but everything's left to your imagination. And then you're right, Joe, in the 90s version, they just pulled out all the stops with CGI and there's like shape-shifting statues and monsters and stuff in this haunted house. It's ridiculous. But it's like the um, Mortal Kombat movie level of CGI. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, not for lack of trying though. The performances in it are great. Uh, what's her name? Lily Taylor plays the protagonist in uh-huh. that. Um, and then there's that most recent season of uh the TV show A Haunt- The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't is... watched this, but I- I've heard it was only loosely based on the novel. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it <laughs> it's not connected to the novel. It has similar themes to the novel, but it's not the same plot at all. Mm-hmm. But I think. You can see in that uh, an attempt to merge the two things together, the like dreadful terror of the first one. And then there is a little bit of CGI, like boo, jump scare type stuff in the um, TV series as well. In the version of The Haunting of Hill House, I read there was actually an introduction or a preface or something. There was some kind of piece of writing beforehand by Guillermo del Toro. Where oh, he, yeah. he talked about his appreciation for the novel. And I remember uh, it's been a little while now, but I, I vaguely recall that he talked about um, the way that the house itself is written of like a predator in the natural mm-hmm. world, uh, the way that it functions like a lion on the savanna or something, that it tries to isolate and pick off weak members of the group. Yeah. Yeah, I remember all that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. He, that's a really smart uh, observation on his part. Um, there is There are adaptations of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. In fact, just last year, I think, a film version of it came out, uh, and it stars Sebastian Stan, Tysa Farmiga, uh, Alexandra Daddario, and Crispin Glover, Glover plays Ooh, Uncle Julian. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have not seen it. I'm hoping that they didn't inject it with as much CGI as went into the uh, <laughs> 90s Haunting of Hill House. 
but yeah, it looks from watching the trailer, it looks very faithful to the book. Oh, well, I got to read that one too now. All right, so you have one more pick to share with us. Uh, what, what do you have and what is the, uh, the classification on this one? All right, I saved the best for last because I know that this <laughs> is something that you guys are going to be excited about because maybe the listeners aren't aware, but the three of us gentlemen used to sit together in a studio. I think it might be the same studio you're sitting in now and talk to the audience of Stuff to Blow Your Mind over Facebook every Friday. Ooh. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, this was a couple of years ago. We would uh, we would frame it around trailers for horror movies that were connected to the topics that we had, uh, you know, been covering on the show that week. And one that always came up, we all agree that we love this movie, is They Live, John Carpenter's They Live. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. So I got this book called They Live, A Visual and Cultural Awakening. <laughs> and it is... It's this amazing collection put together by Rough Trade Publications, and you can order the book through Mondo, although I think it might be sold out now. They, they like, I got like a second printing of it. They, like every year, release a couple copies of it. Um, and it is, it looks like a magazine. Like, it looks like a big, thick, like variety magazine type thing because it's designed to look like the magazines on the newsstand in They Live. Oh, that's So the front of it just says Obey in big letters on it. (laughs) Nice. Um, But inside, it's a a proper book with just a bunch of content in it that's all related to the movie and trying to dissect the movie and better understand it. So uh, it includes the original short story that the movie is based on, as well as the comic book adaptation uh, that they also based it on, both of which were written by a guy named Ray Nelson. Hmm. And then there are articles examining how things work in the movie, like um, gender roles or uh, portrayals of capitalism. And they're uh, written by people like John Grant, Slavoj Žižek, Shepard Ferry, Roger Luckhurst, and someone named Brandalism. Um, <laughs> some of those may be familiar to you. Shepard Ferry is the yeah. guy who yeah. made the Obey stickers. Uh, does anybody explain the wrestling match in the middle of the movie? I want a scholarly <laughs> is, dissertation on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is quite a bit of conversation, I believe, in uh, John Grant's piece. I'm, I'm not sure which piece it was, but they do talk about that that epic wrestling match. Well, now to be clear, it is a it is a it is a standard uh, fisticuffs fight that has some wrestling moves incorporated uh-huh. into it. No, this I th- is true. I think it is notable for how long it goes oh, on. Yeah. It like, is notable for its length, but it, but it's it's more like there are just a few spots that are incorporated into the action. Uh-huh. You know, clearly because Roddy Roddy Piper. Uh, is the star exactly oh yeah yeah. i mean just like every time you think the fight's over it Mm -hmm. starts up again and that's the quality it has that's like a wrestling match in the wwe i think one of the things that stands out about it is that this is the uh this is an example of a fight in a western motion picture in which the fight actually tells a story Hmm. and Mm -hmm. you 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 see much more of that in um in like hong kong cinema in Uh japanese cinema etc but in Western cinema, especially in recent decades, it's it's all about just you know slash cuts and a kind of a feeling of a fight happening without like the story of the fight. Yes, uh, I, I agree. I hate most action movies because most action movies are boring because most fighting in movies is photographed in a way that is dramatically totally static. Yeah, like there there's nothing really at stake other than like I guess somebody's going to win. Yeah. So in 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 to whatever degree 
the uh, the fight in They Live resembles a wrestling match. I think it's, I mean, obviously, it's part of it is because there are wrestling moves. Roddy Roddy Piper's there. But pro- professional wrestling is a, a fictional uh, fight, uh, like a, a physical performance that it, that should tell a story. Mm-hmm. So it's like I, ballet. Yeah, yeah. But except it's it's a fight, obviously. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm curious, that, yeah, to what degree they go into into this. Like who who is responsible for that that battle uh, appearing like it does in the film? So one of the essays in here, I think it might be Craig Oldham's essay. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but one of the essays talks about that fight scene as being this great example of how difficult it is to pull yourself away from ideology Mm. and that um, if they live is showing you what ideology is when you put on the sunglasses, then when Rowdy Roddy Piper goes to Keith David and he says, (laughs) hey, put on these glasses and Keith David, no matter what, doesn't want to put those sunglasses on to the point that he fist fights his friend (laughs) for 10 minutes in an alleyway. Uh, that their their argument is is like, look, this is proof that it's extremely difficult to pull yourself out of you know the culture that you live within and see it for something else, um, and and that the fight is an example of that. That like the whole thing is Keith David is is fighting against kind of his instinct to he he knows there's something else on the other side of the world, but he doesn't want to see what it is. It's oh, interesting it's, it's the way it portrays it almost like as an issue of like ego or dignity. It's like he mm-hmm. you know, he won't stoop to putting the glasses on. Yeah, I mean we and we we see that every day. I mean yeah. I think uh, to a certain extent we see that in ourselves too, you know? I mean with this yeah. this this battle uh, <laughs> against the you know, the truth. Um, I highly recommend this book because it, you know, I've I've loved that movie since I was a kid, but this book points out things about it that I, I never realized even as an adult. You know, mm-hmm. um, Craig Oldham has this piece in there that is about how poverty in Los Angeles is portrayed in the film, and uh, apparently, like the the camp that Rowdy Roddy Piper lives in was a real homeless camp that hmm. was in L.A. at the time. And they used the actual, um, you know, people who lived there as background actors in They Live. And apparently, uh, shortly after they shot this film, the city of Los Angeles tore it down. Well, isn't that what happens in the movie? That, uh, like, the, yeah. the, basically the people in the homeless camp are just being assaulted by the police and the developers that come through with big machinery and everything mm-hmm. to just drive them out? Yeah, exactly. So they point out that what you see in the movie eventually happens in real life to wow. this camp. Um, I mean, you know, you can argue about the politics behind it or not, but the the fact is, is that, yeah, they were removed from the city. Um, yeah, I, I'm only about halfway through it, and I'm just finding, like, every single piece in here is fascinating. Um, I never realized that it was based on a comic, and so, like, a lot of the classic scenes that I remember from the movie are in this comic book that came out, you know, well before the movie was ever made. Um, But Carpenter apparently optioned it. You know, he saw it somewhere and he was like, yeah, I want to make something about that. But um, yeah, I, I think like the, the overall argument of this big book is like, there's so much going on in John Carpenter movies that is under the surface and isn't overt, you know, Uh commentary on society. And Obviously, They Live is one of the real big ones. There's all kinds of archived imagery in here um, from things like the WWE. So you get some perspective on Rowdy Roddy Piper in it. Um, the relationship of 
uh, this film to our current era and talking about Donald Trump. And like, I don't know if you've seen the uh, imagery that shows Trump, but he's got like the they live alien face. Yes. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. I mean, I would say like even if even if you weren't into the movie, which I can't imagine why you wouldn't be, uh, th- there's a lot to learn here. Well, I do feel like it's one of those movies that, that some people may have seen when they were younger and they may have been like, okay, that bubble gum line is really cool. And, you know, maybe yeah. they pick up on some of the, the, the you know, the, the thematic power of it. But it's also, I think, easy to dismiss it if you, if you haven't, you know, given it a more thoughtful viewing. Well, yeah, it's one of those that you go three levels all the way around on, right? Mm-hmm. Like at first you're like, whoa, that movie blew my mind. <laughs> and then the more sophisticated person says, actually, that's a very simplistic critique of society. And the movies, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's full of cliches, you know, wake up sheeple. I mean, mm-hmm. duh. But then if you get to the third level, you you, you kind of come back all the way around and say, there is something kind of uh, insightful and subtle about it. But of course, the the... Mm-hmm. A counter argument to that might be that I feel like I go through all those three levels on terrible films. Oh yeah, (laughs) films where there probably there isn't really a third level there. But if I if I think about it enough, I I I create a third level. I think to some degree, all three of us have that disease. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, I do a whole show about that disease. But uh, (laughs) there is, yeah. I mean, uh, what were we talking about before we came on air? Guardians of Gahul. Three uh, phases with that film yet, Robert? Um, well, like I say, I've, I've only seen I've only seen it once, uh, but uh, but now I'm kind of interested to check out the books, especially now that you know, my my son's at the point where he could conceivably read them. I mean, he's reading all the Harry Potters, so and he yeah. loves animals. So who knows? Yeah. You know, 25, 30 years from now, it, it might turn out that Guardians of Gahul was a commentary on capitalist ideology. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, why did we talk about that? It was because somebody who, the person who wrote it wrote something else. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, the, the, so just to, to, to clarify for anyone listening, we were recording this interview before we recorded the, oh. uh, the, the part that you just previously heard. So Christian wasn't, uh, wasn't here. And actually, yeah, I'm referring to a conversation that Joe and I will have in the future but, but we've already, already had uh, on this show. Uh, but yeah, referring it wouldn't be a stuff to blow your mind without me messing up. <laughs> no, no. time wise, not your fault, man. I uh, know, but <laughs> yeah, the, the book uh, in question here is uh, First Painter" by uh, Catherine Lasky. All right. Uh, well, Christian, before we send you on your way, I thought uh, we should uh, ha- take a moment to talk about Super Context. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I uh, do a podcast on my own now with my co-host Charlie Bennett, who's also based in Atlanta. Uh, near you guys and it is we call it a podcast autopsy of media every week we take a look at entertainment kind of like how we were just talking about they live uh and we we do a deep dive into the research on it and try to figure out how it informs everyday culture so we look at things like film television prose music and comics um basically we're trying to apply like a critical thinking lens to the entertainment world uh, what are some favorite episodes of yours from the past few months that people should check out? You know, you guys just caught us at the tail end of what we were calling Lovecraft Month. For a long time, we've said we'll never do an episode on H.P. Lovecraft because Charlie and I both have strong feelings about his uh, racism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we decided to do instead to try to understand his influence on pop culture was we did five episodes on things that are all tangentially related to to Lovecraft, whether they're adaptations or not. Uh, we did an episode that just came out last week on the podcast Welcome to Night Vale, which was really 
really insightful. I learned a lot about the podcast industry from reading about those guys. Um, we did one on the video game Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth. I don't know if you guys ever played that. I haven't. That's a no. new one, right? Uh, th there is a newer one. This mm -hmm. one came out in like 2005 oh, or okay. 2006. The new Call of Cthulhu did just come out this year, I think. Uh, we did one on the graphic novel Providence by Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs, which is a real deep dive into trying to unpack Lovecraft and his influence on literature. He was from Providence, uh, Rhode Island, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and then we did From Beyond, which oh, you guys yes. are well familiar mm -hmm. with, the Stuart Gordon film. And then the first one we did was about this novel that uh, came out a couple of years ago and is about to be made into an HBO TV series called Lovecraft Country, and it's by Matt Ruff. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, Jordan Peele is producing the HBO series. The, the premise of Lovecraft Country is that an African-American family in the 1950s comes into contact with Lovecraftian stuff, uh, but because they're so accustomed to prejudice in everyday life already the dreadful nature of all of Lovecraft's monsters aren't as effective. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting book. I uh, I, I was hoping for more from it, I'll, I'll be honest, but uh, apparently the TV show, all word about the TV show sounds like they're going to expand things so that it's a lot more interesting. Very cool. And uh, anything coming up that you're particularly excited about you can share? Any hints? We are about out to publish an episode probably by the time this comes out our episode on john gardner's on moral fiction will be out are you guys familiar with john gardner john gardner the author of grindle yes ah. that's exactly who it is yeah i mean i so, love grindle but I, I've, I've never read any of his other works so in 1979 he published a non-fiction book called on moral fiction and it was this long some people call it a rant some people call it a treatise arguing that modern day fiction is immoral and that uh, all art and fiction has the responsibility to be moral and including the people who criticize art and fiction. And Gardner took a lot of big name authors to task in that book uh, and really just ripped into them uh, about why he thought that their work was bad and why it was bad for modern culture and why it was, you know, slowing down the efforts of fiction in terms of like the human project. Uh, and so we sat down and just analyzed all the arguments around it. We talked about its publishing. We talked about how he wrote it. And we talked about how all of these authors responded to it. So people like Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow and Kurt Vonnegut, like all of them he attacked in this book. And essentially it ruined his career. Uh, within like he couldn't get good reviews for any of his books after this thing came out and then he died in like this tragic motorcycle accident mm. a couple years later yeah, I remember reading uh, I've, I've, I've read about uh, his death uh, before a lot of the a lot of the articles point out since you mentioned Grendel they point out that they see a lot of parallels between his life and the way he depicts Grendel in that book so I found it all really interesting. interesting, and I'd never read Gardner before. Huh. Have, have you read Grindel? I have not. You should no. definitely yeah, read Grindel. I really recommend Grindel to, to everyone. It's really just pick it up in, in your hands, and you will find yourself reading it. And then you'll, have, you will have, you'll find yourself having read it. It's, uh, it's just one of those books that just sucks you in. It's just so, so well written. You, you don't even have anyone out there, you might, you might be saying, well, well, I've never read Beowulf. I'm not familiar. You don't, you don't need to know Beowulf. If you, if you know Beowulf... Uh, you know, you, maybe you have a you know a slight advantage, but uh, uh, it's it's a book that it just stands on its own. 
Uh, but that's yeah, the interesting. The premise is that it's it's Beowulf from the perspective of the monster Grendel, right? Yeah, and uh, and so it's this monster that lives on the you know the, the you know the Earth the very, Rim Roamer. Yeah, the Earth Rim Roamer, uh, the the very boundaries of the the world. Uh, you know, commenting on the nature of humanity and 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 it really builds up Beowulf as this you know ultimately this just inhuman kind of monster. Like Beowulf is the monster of of the book Grendel. Yeah. Well, that sounds very John Gardner. I'm sure it's good, but it's also, that's kind of how he saw himself in yeah. relationship to the rest of the world. It's a cautionary tale for sure. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we'll let everybody know once more where they can find Super Context. Super Context is uh, our home base is patreon.com slash Super Context. We have a community of listeners that participate there. And uh, that helps fund the show as well. And you can download it wherever you get podcasts. We're on Apple, Google Play, Spotify. What are the other ones, guys? Do you, are you still doing those ad reads? Uh, <laughs> I, but we've we've kept. We can't even we keep track of where, where Stitcher. They, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like naming all of the the demons in a, in any given <laughs> right. uh, grimoire. You know, <laughs> yeah. You just you just you refer have to conjure to the, them with a symbol and then bind them with right. candles. Yeah, yeah. you just say Payman, the, the Infernal that. Legion. That's all. You just cover them all with a, a general uh, name. We're on all of the Infernal Legion. <laughs> find us on all of the there. Nine Kings of Hell. Oh <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Christian. Yeah, it's been thanks. really fun. Thanks for having me, guys. It was good to talk to you. I hope you're all doing well and say hello to everybody else at the office. Will do. And in, please enjoy the rest of your summer. I think there are, what, a couple of weeks left, maybe a week left. A couple of hours left. Yeah. I don't know when it officially ends, but here in Portland, it's September 3rd. So Ooh. I don't know what day it is in Atlanta. Do you guys travel <laughs> backwards in time? Well, this episode is definitely coming out after September 3rd. So uh, at, at any rate, I think we we perhaps recorded it just in time before the summer ended. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> hey, everybody, subscribe to Super Context. Come on. All right. So there you have it. Uh, another episode of, of summer reading uh, is in the books. Uh, just in time, or maybe a little late, depending on <laughs> on, uh, on on how you view summer. But at any rate, we did it, uh, and we'll try to do it again next year, maybe a little earlier. So maybe in in less than a year, uh-huh. you'll see another summer summer uh, reading episode. About eight months. Yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, if you would like to check out past summer reading episodes, just past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in general, uh, you can find us at stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can also find the podcast. Uh, you know, anywhere you find your podcast, just shout out to the Infernal Legions and they will serve it to you. Um, and uh, yeah, beyond that, I don't know, if you want to use social media, uh, you can. Um, you know the perils of doing that. Uh, <laughs> you've listened to the show, but um, you know, that's that's your choice. That's not uh, it's not ours to make for you. Don't passive aggressively shame them, Robert. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, pa- I'm also shaming myself. Yeah, this is, this, is, both, our, this yeah. is our shame as a, as a people. Uh, so uh, we all share in it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yes, there, there are social media accounts for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Do with them what you will. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, yeah, but the main thing is if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is, yeah, don't even mess with social media. Just uh, rate and review the show wherever you get it. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Maya Cole and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to give us uh, feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.